Our primary reading this morning is from James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has been conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Or his own will, of his own will, he brought thought us, I'm sorry, excuse me, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word of the Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. Among Protestants since the Reformation, there is probably no book of the New Testament that has been more maligned than the Epistle of James. Martin Luther, the priest who kicked off the Protestant Reformation, once famously said that we should consider removing James from the Bible because it was, quote, an epistle of straw. And from that time, it's really been downhill for James ever since. By the 20th century, liberal theologian Martin de Belias, one of the most influential authorities on James, declared that James, quote, had no theology. James has been called by other prominent theologians as the junk mail of the Second Testament, 
God light and man heavy, and even labeled the Melchizedek of the Christian canon. And I know how much y'all love learning about Melchizedek in our Hebrew series. So why all have this hating on James? Well, I think it's because if you come to the Bible looking for words on forgiveness or just have faith Christianity, James isn't going to give it to you. James wants social justice and sacrificial Christianity. If you come to the Bible looking for spirituality and polite advice, James isn't going to give it to you. James is very practical and very political. In short, James often reads more like a fiery Old Testament prophet than any disciple of Jesus. And yet, even with those Christians who have found all sorts of reasons to avoid the epistle of James, here's what struck me as wild the church has been trying to avoid listening to the man who was Jesus's brother. And I don't mean spiritual brother. I mean Jesus's literal brother, or at least half-brother, because, you know, Jesus' dad was, well, God. But James grew up with Jesus. And at first, James didn't believe that Jesus was from God. In fact, the Gospels record early on that Jesus' family thought that Jesus was something of an embarrassment, maybe even a little crazy. And I get it. I, I probably would hate to be the little brother of Jesus too. I mean, you're in the shadow of the most golden of all golden childs, right? Like the halo around his head. And can you imagine like Mary just being like, why can't you be more like your older brother? James probably had a little bit of resentment towards Jesus. But after the death and resurrection of his brother, James changes his mind. He becomes convinced of who Jesus said he was. He becomes so convinced that he emerges not only as a leader among first Christians, but the leader of the church in Jerusalem and one of the three most influential Christians in the entire Roman world, which were Paul, Peter, and James. In fact, when we talk about the early divisions within Christianity, we often think of Paul representing the Greco-Roman stream of Christianity and Peter representing the Hebrew stream of Christianity. And yet, when a group of early Hebrew Christians accuses Paul of being this wishy-washy liberal who doesn't follow the clear teachings of the Bible, they don't say they come from Peter. They say they come from James. To invoke James, to flash the badge of James as an authority may have even been a bigger deal than to associate with Peter. This is why when James in his opening of his letter addresses it not to a single church, but to the 12 dispersed tribes of Israel, basically all Hebrews everywhere, this was his level of influence. And so if James grew up with Jesus, was highly respected as a faithful leader, and not only that, was martyred in 62 AD for his faith as recorded by the secular historian Josephus, then why aren't we spending more time studying how James understood the practical implications of the gospel? That's why we're going to spend the next seven weeks exploring line by line this respected letter and the only recorded letter that we have from this Christian leader. So with that, let's pick up after James's greeting, chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, 
When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, normally when something difficult happens to us, when we find ourselves going through some sort of trial or ordeal, joy is probably not the word that we're going to use in this situation. And so why then is joy what James points us to? Well, I think it's important to first clarify what James does not mean here. This is not an appeal to toxic positivity. This is not a command for emotional bypassing. When you are going through something really difficult or painful, the Christian response is not just to pretend you're happy and put on the smile. You're supposed to feel all the feels, okay? But what James is saying is count it. Consider it. Imagine the possibility that though what you are experiencing right now is hard, God is capable of redeeming it for joy. And when you imagine that's possible, and God turns that possibility into a reality, your faith deepens, your joy becomes more unshakable. And then later, when a similar challenge may happen in your future, you will be able to say with confidence that I lack nothing because I know that God is with me. But it's not just about the imagination. It's not just hoping God will give you joy at the end of your struggle. James says that God also wants to give us wisdom in those very trials. Let's look at verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Friends, the promise of wisdom here is actually a really gracious one. Look at how James describes it. God is not miserly with wisdom, but generous God doesn't metaphorically roll their eyes at us or, or shame us when we say that we need help. There's no reproach. There's no divine lecture from God. This is a God who delights to give you discernment, the kind you don't feel like you have but desperately need. And yet, as gracious as this posture is towards us, I think we will often miss out on the wisdom that God wants to give us. Because what is this wisdom conditioned on? That we don't doubt. Now, if you feel like that is a high bar to meet, I would agree with you, but I don't think this is the doubt that you're probably thinking about. When we think about doubt, we often think about a lack of confidence. We, we have questions or we're skeptical. But in the New Testament, there are two words for doubt, apistia and diacrino. Apistia is the kind of questioning form of doubt. And when that word is used in the New Testament, a person with apistia is not inherently at fault. It's just cognitive dissonance. They've done nothing wrong. On the other hand, diacrino, which is the word that James uses here, is when our lack of trust in God makes us unfaithful to God. It's a kind of doubt that negatively impacts our actions. Or to put it another way, our college pastor Aaron likes to say that the difference between these two types of doubt is the difference between a question mark and a period. So what would this warning to not diacrino have meant for James's audience? What was their temptation? 
Well, this letter is written around 50 AD, and there was a series of famines that had just hit the Judean region, a region that was estimated where nine out of 10 people were living at the subsistence level. And on top of that, the top 1% controlled somewhere around 20% of all the wealth. So to make a comparison, the top 1% of the United States controls over 30% of all the wealth. So, you know, make with that what you will. However, the Jewish zealot faction also, a movement dedicated to the violent overthrow of Rome, is also beginning to pick up steam at this time. So the world is falling apart economically and spinning out of control politically at the same time. Aren't you glad that we don't know how to relate to this? So what would Diocrino have looked like for the Hebrew Christians at this time? Basically, it would be to claim the way of Jesus, but instead reach for the tools of their enemies. To be willing to return to the social respectability that was institutional Judaism at the time. To engage in theft or graft that their neighbors were certainly already doing in order to just get by. And even to align with the violence of the zealots in overthrowing their oppressors. And so when you're facing a struggle that doesn't seem to resolve itself, what tools are you reaching out to? When there are people in authority over you who are using their power to sabotage you. When financial debt begins to pile up and the system doesn't offer you a way out. When someone harnesses the legal system not for justice or equity, but actually to crush and ruin you. When you're in a struggle and you claim the way of Jesus, are you tempted tempted to reach for the tools of your enemies? Confession, yes. But James is saying here that I can't receive the wisdom of God if I already have a backup plan in mind, if I get too impatient with the way of Jesus. That's why he calls it being a double-minded person. When I do this, I'm hardly any better than the politician who speaks out of both sides of their mouth in order to best position themselves and whoever they're in front of. But if I want to begin to receive the wisdom of God, which God wants to give you, I can have my intellectual doubts, my apistia, but I have to turn away from making plans that reflect distrusting doubt, diacrino. I have to turn away from using the tools of my enemies. And again, we can be confident that this kind of division between intellectual doubt and distrusting doubt is what James is using here because he begins to assure us about our intellectual doubt in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, it's one thing to say to not use the tools of your enemies. It's another thing to say the tools of your enemies don't work. Because in the first century, you wouldn't have to look far to find that someone was successfully stealing or using violence effectively or being so rich that it seems like the rules don't apply to them. First century or today, right? So let's be fair to ourselves. The reason why I want to use the tools of my enemies is not because I hate the way of Jesus. 
It's because I think those tools work better. And James is a realist. He says, yes, I know this is how it looks right now. But let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. What does this mean? Well, here's one implication. If people have ever told you that you're not important, that no one cares about you, they're lying. Every time, they're lying. You are important to God, and God cares about you. In fact, to be a child of God is to be exalted by God. But not only is this a spiritual reality now, it will also be a physical reality in the future. Christians believe that when Jesus returns, God will set all things right. And that includes raising up the lowly, the socially insignificant, the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed. Yes, the tools of our enemies look like they work right now, but they won't forever. Sooner or later, they will fail. And James is actually re-quoting this from the prophet Isaiah, which we heard in our first reading this morning. The powerful, the elite, the rich, they will be like grass. They will be like a fading flower. They will experience humiliation when they are brought down. And yet, did you notice that not only does James tell the lowly to boast, to have confidence in their now and future exaltation, but he also tells the few wealthy Christians who may be hearing this letter to boast in their humiliation. Why would I ever do that? Because unlike my wealthy non-Christian peers, James says that as a follower of Jesus, I'll know the secret. I will know the future. I will know that none of the things that society tells me make, that make me worthy, none of the things that society says has made me important are going to last. I know how this all plays out. God will bring up the lowly and bring down the privileged. And when I know that, it's good news. Because I can actually hold all the things that make up my anxiety, and I can hold them very loosely. I'm freed from that anxiety. And just like the lowly, I too can understand my true value and importance. It's not in relation to my power or my wealth, but my relationship with God. So the last psychological hurdle in overcoming my doubt that James wants to address is this. Is God as consistently good as we say God is? Because on the evidence, the surface of it seems a little shaky. I want to receive wisdom, but it seems to be hard to find. I, I, I want to follow the way of Jesus, but the tools of my enemies seem to work better. I, I, I want to believe my life matters, but there are people more powerful than me telling me that it doesn't. Friends, if I doubt the consistent goodness of God, I will doubt everything James is trying to teach me. So let's look at what he tells us in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
All of us have probably said at some point, or maybe we at least know someone who says, oh man, God's really tempting me right now. But James is clear. God is not tempting you. God is not allowing that struggle in your life with some secret hope that you're going to screw up. The devil didn't make you do it either. Who does James say is responsible instead? Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Y'all, James' description about the dynamics of sin is really insightful here. First, there's something I want. It might be a bad thing, but it could also be a good thing. But when my desire lures me into taking the ethical shortcut to abandoning the way of Jesus, that's when sin happens. Because remember, sin is just best defined as unjustifiable harm. And that sin, that unjustifiable harm, when it goes out into my relationships with the community, it has a hard time being controlled. It tends to bounce around like a ball in a pinball machine. And so what simply started as my desire for something over a series of steps can actually cause enough harm that it leads to death. And yet, James says that while sin consistently leads us to death, God will consistently lead us to life. Let's look at verse 16. To not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What does James mean here? Well, part of this is very simple. God is consistently good. If something really good or practically perfect has come into your life, you can be confident that it is a gift from God. Again, God hasn't been trying to tempt you in your struggles. God is not trying to trick you with your blessings. Don't overthink it, says James. And y'all, I got to tell you some of that. Because some of you have been told that the good things in your life are actually temptations. Like you've been taught that if something is so good, so happiness-inducing, so wonderful, that it must be a test from God. Like God is testing you to see if you love it more than God, which means you're supposed to reject it, whatever that it is. It's that job, it's that relationship, it's that perfect, adorable puppy, whatever it is, just throw it out. Sorry, puppy. Y'all, that is not the character of God. The creator of all things, of the cosmos, what James means when he calls God the father of lights. That same God who wrote the laws of physics will have the same consistency in your life. There is no variation or shadow of God's character. And that consistency goes both ways. Even when because of my struggles, it doesn't feel like it's true. Even when my mind in its despair tells me it's not true. Because I understand some of you might be going through some heavy struggles with some scary systems and some scary people. The kind of struggles that every day 
you feel like you died just a little bit more. But God wants to bring you to a new kind of life. This is what James gives us in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Because of his life, death, and resurrection, the word of truth, Jesus Christ, conquered sin and death. And through that, initiated a new way, a fuller way of being human. The Apostle Paul calls you a new creation in Christ. And the way in which you persevere in your struggles against the systems and people that are stronger than you is one of the most difficult but most profound ways that this new way of being human is matured in you. And so the good news is that when you live in the way of Jesus, that you don't reach for the tools of your enemies, God begins to reveal through you to the world this new way of being human. You become the first fruits of this new creation that grows from the finished work of Christ. And we count it all joy, if not for what it currently is. Certainly for what it will one day be. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Colin, we have some theologians with some questions. Uh, All right, tools of the enemies. Has there ever been a real significant historical revolution without the underpinnings of violence or a just war? (laughs) Oh, man. So this this is like a whole Bible study at least, right? So this is something Christians have wrestled with for a long time. It's like, well, sometimes do you need violence, right? Um, I think this is a long conversation. I think Christians should always be engaged in the tension of it, right? Um, I think you do have in the 20th century some good examples of nonviolent revolutions occurring, right? Now that you can debate whether that's because we have these democratic institutions that prevent violence from the state, but I think you're seeing, you think there's some examples, but I think the example that Jesus is speaking into is particularly the situations where you don't have power, um, and so you could be, you could use the tools of your enemy, but one, it might not even work, but more likely it's going to do violence to your soul. Right? And I think there's all these situations that we've all maybe experienced where you're like, I could take up this tool. I could use this way of dealing with someone who's harming me. But in the process, it's going to harm my, my own sense of self. And I think, again, that's a, something you wrestle with community. You wrestle with the people you love. Um, it doesn't mean, right? Because it doesn't mean we hold people accountable to the law. You don't bring justice. Um, but there's a tension that you wrestle in. Like, how is this going to affect you? And I think that's the question that James's community is wrestling with as well. If we should think of trials as a chance for God to redeem it for good, should we then think of life's trials as coming from God? Some traditions will say that your trials are given by God. I don't tend to go this direction. I'm never going to say the Lord's not going to do something because I don't want to 
say what the Lord can and cannot do. But I think the consistent, more consistent theme in Scripture is that God allows certain trials to enter in your life, or these trials just happen because of the randomness and brokenness of the world, and that God is more interested in actually redeeming those things for your character. James is really focused a lot on your character. He's not even saying like, oh, it's going to be a happy ending. He's like, no, no, God's going to use these things in you that you think are terrible, but God's actually going to make it so that you will come out on the other side one stronger, better, and revealing the kingdom. And so, uh, yeah, if you, I'm not going to say you can't think that, but I would caution you to say that God's sending you trials. I think it's more allowing. All right, last one. What if in our trials it feels much more authentic to lament and this counting them as joy may be a possibility, but not anytime soon. How can we make space for all of the steps? Oh, I love that. Lament, yeah. This is why it's really good to not just read James and go like, okay, I'm going through this hard thing, count it as joy. You need the lament, you need the, you need the grief time, because that is part of a, of a healthy, I think for James, a healthy ability to count as joy. Yeah. And so go through the lament, get through do those processes. And then the counting as joy, I think, is an imaginative process that you begin in your prayer life and in your community to say, yes, this is terrible and difficult, but I trust that God is maybe at work in this and can be at work, and then begin to explore those possibilities of trust. So yeah, don't feel like you need to rush the process. Like I said earlier, feel all the feels as long as that takes. Thank you, Colin. And thank y'all. Please send in more questions. And spoiler alert, we have a text from a teenager that you can answer tomorrow on Facebook Live. Fun. All right.